This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, we learned grocery prices in Canada are likely to continue to go up next year, despite ongoing measures by the central bank to try and bring down inflation. The authors of Canada's Food Price Report 2023 say we will be faced with a 5 to 7% food price increase next year, on top of an 11% increase that we're already challenged with in 2022. The food categories predicted to be hardest hit are vegetables, meat, and dairy. And while that news was released, grocery executives began appearing before a House of Commons committee in Ottawa trying to convince politicians that greedflation is not real. Among those who continue to be hardest hit are fixed-income older seniors, an ongoing concern for our Zoomer squad. Joining Libby as they do every Monday, Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer of CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Well, I think I'm... I'm try to find out how many people are really poor or poverty-stricken and less able. It's one thing to say it affects all of us, but some of us can move money around, buy a little less here, buy a little more there. But in Ontario, there are 2 million seniors, age 65 plus, 2 million in Ontario, with a household income of $40,000 or less. And that's serious. And in Toronto, it's about a quarter of a million people. So these people, and, and of these of this group, um, 300,000, like more than this group, spend less than $100 a week on groceries. And um, 200,000 state that they are overwhelmed by financial burdens. So even if you wanted to say that Zoomers as a whole are going to be affected unevenly, which of course they are some, but it'll matter more than others. The group that is really in serious trouble with such increases is very large. And I think we have to really focus on just how big a number that is and what can we do to help them. Uh, Bill, uh, talking to about people who are in real trouble, I mean, we keep hearing certain kinds of advice uh, about, you know, how to have healthy meals cheaper. Uh, You know, is that good enough? No, it really isn't uh, good enough. And, and, you know, the the advice is certainly there, you know, uh, buy vegetables, stock up on on things you you need, buy in in bulk. But if you're on the kind of limited incomes that David is talking about, that really doesn't uh, help at all. These people need support. They're often the same people who have difficulty in accessing uh, health uh, assistance and and have health uh, issues. So they're they're even more at risk when they they can't even begin to eat uh, properly. Peter? Yeah, and and it's not like they can 
you know, get around and shop for deals and go to Costco and stuff like that. Like it's, it's, they're not mobile. They're not, um, you know, connected to these food apps or anything where you can, you can find deals all over town. And they're, they're sort of forced to buy from their local grocer who uh, may or may not have the um, best deals in town. So uh, it, it's it's a very very difficult situation uh, coming up this this year, and there there is some hope that by the end of the year prices will start going back, but uh, it's going to be a rough uh, a rough few months, I think. Let's go around the virtual and the <laughs> real table here uh, and wrap things up, starting with Bill. One item that I forgot to mention when we were talking about the two-for-one and three-for-one and package deals is a lot of families and even neighbors now are shopping together and then splitting splitting the costs and splitting those things when they're shopping. Once again, as David says, it takes organization, but it is something you can do to stretch your dollar further. David? I, I would encourage all the listeners to... Be aware of individuals who may be struggling with this, who may be in trouble with this, and who may need help, whether from you, the listener, whether from a a church or a food bank or an organization, that maybe you could uh, put them in touch with these people who, who have the need so that they're not left in isolation fending for themselves. I think we can, we can't solve it. But we can move toward relieving it for many people if we just, you know, keep our eyes open and say, who needs the help? Do they have a network? And could we do anything to activate such a network? David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Some paralegals are describing it as a start, a change that will allow them to provide some family legal services by using a new license. Eventually, paralegals will be able to help clients file for divorce and complete applications for simple joint and uncontested divorces. The proposal was originally recommended to Ontario's Attorney General in a 2017 report to help address access to justice in family court, where the majority of litigants are now self-represented because they cannot afford a lawyer. The version that was approved just over a week ago is narrower than the earlier version of the license, which would have allowed paralegals to represent clients in court for divorces, child support and spousal support, and to draft separation agreements. It was dropped before a vote at the Law Society of Ontario because lawyers opposed it. Libby was joined by family lawyer David Tobin to discuss. I will say I am against it, uh, mostly uh, because I don't know if it really addresses the real issue. And as you kind of said at the outset, the Law Society of Ontario has approved a mandate which really allows or or simply allows paralegals to address certain issues like an uncontested or a simple divorce or a domestic contract. Now, do I think that those discrete and particular tasks are are too difficult for paralegals? Of, Of course not. I don't. But uh, in family law, context is everything, and I think there are many other issues at play when, let's say, a divorce order is issued, right? It starts the clock on a limitation period for equalization 
of uh, net family property. And if all the property issues uh, are not properly identified, then it can have very significant consequences. So, so in that way, I'm, I'm uh, not supportive of it. But I also think it's really uh, just the uh, thin edge of the wedge, so to speak. As you, as you mentioned, um, some paralegal said, well, this is what we have now. But again, I think this, we're going down the wrong road if that's how we're going to address the access to justice issue, which I think most family lawyers would agree uh, exists. I think the question should be is how does this particular mandate help um, help the access to justice issue more than, let's say, expanding funding for legal aid or, or changing the qualification for legal aid? And I think that would do a lot more. Well, I mean, there are so many competing asks for public money, uh, and we have a huge court backlog to begin with. Uh, but, I mean, I guess the argument is, you know, sure, it would be great to have a really good family lawyer on your side. However, if people uh, just can't afford it and they're going to have nothing, doesn't it make sense uh, for them to get help from a paralegal? I think that's that's a a way of looking at it, but I don't think it looks at the whole issue. And I think what it does is take the focus off the real issue. And I and I think um, the real issue for many years is a lack of priority or funding for legal aid, a lack of funding for uh, the unified family court system, and appointing more family trained judges. To me, that is a much better way to to help access to justice and help. Where do you see this going? Well, where do I see it going versus where I hope it goes are, are two uh, different um, answers. Where I hope it goes, I think we're getting to a critical point where uh, both the provincial and the federal government have to recognize the amount of funding that they prioritize for the family justice system is just inadequate for the families and it is uh, destructive. And I hope that there's enough pressure uh, you know, on those in charge to, to provide the funding, to prioritize uh, family and the family justice system, and to expand legal aid funding and, and, and more appointments of family-trained judges. Where I think it's going, uh, you, know, I, you know, obviously paralegals will be able to do these uh, limited tasks, and if it is successful and it's helpful, then I, I suppose they'll probably ask for an expansion, um, and I guess we'll see where that goes. Hmm. Anything else you'd like to leave us with on this? No, I guess the last thing I would say, and we as family lawyers deal with it quite often, is that there's, uh, I think, an idea that because we deal with uh, normal people's everyday lives, that somehow family law is... uh, less complex or more intuitive. And I think that's just wrong. And I think watering it down could have very significant uh, negative implications for families. So that's where I would end. David Tobin, lawyer with Frankel Tobin LLP. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Ontario voters fight back against Bill 23. Our recovering politicians discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It turns out more than half of Ontario voters are against using parts of the environmentally sensitive green belt for housing developments. The results of a Main Street poll this week reflect what we've been hearing from you, our Zoomer Radio listeners, on Fight Back over this hot-button issue. The governing Ford PCs at Queen's Park recently passed Bill 23, which includes a plan to develop some of the Green Belt, a plan which the Premier said he would never act on when he was running for re-election this past spring. As more Ontario residents express reservations about this development plan, Libby spoke with Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel about it. Lisa Raitt is a former deputy leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Sherry DeNovo is a former Ontario NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. And John Malloy is a former Ontario Liberal MPP who served as a cabinet minister under both Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne. I think people are upset for two reasons. First of all, because of the nature of the move itself, which isn't really understandable. I mean, they're talking about 1.5 million houses, and they're doing this for 50,000 houses, something very dramatic. And that's the second point. The idea behind the Green Belt is it's supposed to be kept away from politicians. It's a piece of land that's set aside uh, forever. And, you know, here they are mucking about in it. And, you know, it may be a, a bit of a stretch, but, you know, it's, it sort of brings up the notwithstanding clause. You know, the Constitution says one thing, well, we're going to ignore the Constitution. We set up the Green Belt. We're not supposed to touch the Green Belt. We're going to touch the Green Belt. I think it's this pattern of them involving themselves where they shouldn't is, is, is annoying people as much as, as opening up the Green Belt itself. And I think, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay with them for a while. And, I mean, there's this whole fundraising aspect and that some of these developers that stand to make tens of millions of dollars were, were very close to the PC government, huge donors. Like, for the opposition, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. And, and I think Ontarians are, are, are rightly upset about it. Sherry, are, are they just miscalculating, misfiring on this? Oh, absolutely. And, and let's face it, I mean, this deal smells. <laughs> I mean, you've got uh, former cabinet ministers, president of the Conservative Party, that are lobbyists for some of the biggest developers on this. We have um, some of the biggest developers, huge contributors to Conservative Party. Um, we have people who borrowed money at exorbitant rates uh, to invest in land that at that point was presumably never going to be developed. Why did they do that? Um, and and finally, and this this constant justification that this is about more housing and we need more housing, we need more affordable housing. Um, I don't think anybody on OW or ODSP is going to be able to afford one of those homes. Um, and I don't think anybody on minimum wage is going to be afford, able to afford one of those homes. Um, this is about pandering to developers and at the expense of biodiversity, talking about another conference that's going on as we speak, um, and, uh, and, and protected land. And of course, um, and, and, you know, there are calls for the Auditor General to look into this, just call, calls for uh, the Integrity Commissioner to look into this, and there have been calls for the OPP to look into this. I mean, that's how bad this deal is, and, I, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon, and, um, and I think one or other of those bodies will investigate, and, I, you know, I suspect what they'll find. Lisa, is this going to stick, or, or do you think that, uh, as with other things, Doug Ford will back down? 
So I dug into the polls, Libby, because I was very interested to see what the breakdowns were. And let me just put it straight. If you lived in Toronto, if you're from Toronto, you live there, you were far less outraged than if you lived in the Hamilton-Niagara area. And it's a big jump. It's a 20-point jump between whether or not you live in Toronto. They still don't like it. They still disapprove. But it's not as great disapproval as it is out in the Hamilton area. 68% disapproval in Hamilton and only 48% in Toronto as well. The people who are really outraged are the folks making more than 100000 a year. People making less than 50000 are the least outraged. So I don't know whether or not you can draw any conclusions about affordable housing or not. What I can say is that the policy isn't, isn't being viewed as outrageous by people who make less than 50000 and that live in Toronto, which seems to be a lot of the votes for the for the government in terms of of moving forward and really that's who they're selling this to we need to open up the green belt in order to provide more housing for you so it seems to be biting in that area for the people who live in the more rural areas and make a lot more money they're the ones that are outraged that they're losing their green belt find the polling very very interesting and i know people are going to pour over the numbers and crunch them and figure out what it all means Lisa Raitt is a former deputy leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Sherry DeNovo is a former Ontario NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. And John Malloy is a former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's a sobering number, especially as we are heading into the holiday spending season. According to a new report by Equifax Canada, consumer debt in this country reached $2.36 trillion in the third quarter, which is a 7.3% increase compared with the same time last year. And what this means for the average consumer is that non-mortgage debt has hit about $21,000. The debt is fueled by an increase in people borrowing money. So just how serious is the situation and what can you do about managing your own debt? On Tuesday, Libby was joined by Stacy Yanchuk Alexi, Chief Executive Officer of Credit Counseling Canada. What we've been experiencing is, you know, over the last couple of years is, you know, we've been prevented from spending. So I'm not convinced that consumers have really changed their habits. I think we've just been prevented. So now that things are opening up, you know, there's more desire to spend and the cost of living has gone up significantly as well. So I'm not surprised that people are using their credit cards to handle life. But, uh, you know, presumably uh, during that time when we were prevented from spending, uh, we heard all about how savings were going up. Are those depleted now? You know, I think it depends on the consumer, right? I think for some consumers, you know, they were able to weather the storm of COVID quite nicely. You know, perhaps they could work from home, you know, so they were prevented from spending on transportation and new clothing and, you know, lunches out, um, you know, and were able to be topped up with CERB or even product deferrals from the creditors. But now that things have returned back to quote-unquote normal, you know, those measures are gone and so things are getting more expensive. And so I'm not surprised at all that this is happening. Does it worry you to see this number, you know, before the holidays? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, granted, it's my job to worry about consumers and their spending. You know, I'm a little biased that 
that way. But, you know, it's not so much, I'm not worried about the next couple of weeks. What I'm worried about is, you know, the week after, you know, New Year's, right, when the bills start to roll in and the, the dismalness of January hits. And now we've got to deal with our bills, you know, an expensive bag of apples, like $9 for a bag of apples. And now we've got to manage it and figure out how to pay it off. That's hmm. my word. I want to talk a little bit about uh, demographics and how people in different demographics, different age groups are, are handling debt and, and their debt. So I would assume that young people have the most debt. That is true. You know, it's an expensive time of life. And also, you know, as you start to, you know, create a family, that gets really expensive as well. So, yes, younger people, you know, have taken on more debt. But in the last few years, you know, it used to be that people who were retired, people on fixed incomes, didn't take on debt. They didn't get themselves into mortgages, even though we're talking here about non-mortgage debt. Uh, But that changed, you know, before the pandemic. So what's the situation of older consumers? Right. So, you know, with seniors, now typically, you know, seniors do have less debt than, you know, non-seniors. And, you know, we we said, we seem to see that they're more, I, and I use air quotes, you know, responsible with their finances, but, you know, they've had more experience with it. However, what we're seeing is, you know, debt has increased, you know, in the seniors' age group, you know, by about 8.2%. But I would look at it that, you know, look at the life that we're all leading. Life has gotten more expensive, you know, whether it's at the gas tank or at the grocery store. And I think that's impacting seniors. They may be imp- or they may be helping adult children, you know, where, you know, someone's lost a job throughout COVID. And maybe you've got a senior helping, you know, their adult, fa- adult children and their family. And so that can create more costs. Any advice for people as they are out shopping or online shopping? You know, how do you uh, restrain yourself a little bit? You know, what I would say, and this is a reflection of my value, so please take it with a grain of salt, but I think there's so much more value given that we've all lived through, as best we could, COVID, the gift of presence, like to be present in someone's life, to be present for dinner or whatever, than physical presence you know, gifts under the tree. And so I encourage people to, you know, shop within their values. Would going for coffee with my best friend be more of a gift because we're going to be out than if I just get her a gift card, right? And so there are different ways to give the gift of love without actually having to spend a lot of money. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Yeah. Anybody who's um, concerned about their finances, reach out to creditcounselingcanada.ca and we would be happy to connect you with a local nonprofit credit counselor. Stacy Yanchuk Alexi, Chief Executive Officer of Credit Counseling Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jim in Pickering phone during our segment on consumer debt and how it's becoming a bigger challenge for more Canadians. It's something that 
you have to um, teach and bring them up and, and give them good example. And, you know, if for myself, everything I buy is 75, 80% is on sale. If it's not on sale, I don't need it this week because it'll be on sale next week. And as far as helping the children, right, I've explained to them from day one that, you know, even grown up wants and needs. And I, for myself too. So if they need help, you should help them and explain to them your help and they need help and I'm giving you this help. But if it's just something they want and they're not being responsible, you're not helping them. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Darlene in Etobicoke, who phoned about getting hit with a bad case of covid and offered some advice to the rest of us. I'm a relatively healthy 71-year-old. I got my flu shot right away, as well as my fifth uh, COVID shot, and I was um, to go on a cruise, and I came down with COVID. Uh, had to cancel my cruise. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very disappointing, but I'm in my third week with COVID. Um Wow. Have had, uh, I'm starting to get better now, but still have a lot of uh, congestion. Um, and I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, if I hadn't had the flu shot and the, um, the fifth uh, COVID shot, I think I would have been so much sicker. I can only imagine how, how ill I would have felt, um, you know, because this has been a bad run as it is. And... Um, Yeah, by all means, get that flu shot and the COVID boosters. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.